Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the On Meaningful Work podcast. Uh, I'm very lucky to be joined by Dr. Armida Fernandez, uh, who I have, who, who I think I've had the honor and the pleasure of knowing uh, all my life, really, because uh, Dr. Fernandez is a uh, a relative and a and a close family friend. Um, so Dr. Fernandez is the retired dean of the Lokmanya Tilak Municipal General Hospital in Mumbai, where she was head of the Department of Neonatology. She is also the re- retired as the medical director of the Holy Family Hospital in Mumbai. She is the founding trustee of Sneha, an NGO working on health, nutrition and violence in Mumbai's urban slums. She is also the founder of the Romila uh, Palliative Care Center. Her key areas of expertise and interest are promotion of breastfeeding and care of newborn babies, especially among the urban poor of Mumbai. She started the first human milk bank in Asia and has developed many low-cost te- uh, techniques for survival of newborn babies. She was named an Ashoka Fellow in 2004 and is the past president of the National Neonatology, Neonatology Forum. Uh, Dr. Fernandez, thank you so much for... For joining me. My pleasure, Rahul. Yeah, it's uh, we had a bit of a we, we had a bit of a we had a few technical issues, but uh, glad glad we're here finally. <laughs> um, so so I think to 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 start off, Dr. Fernandez, uh, like when you hear someone, you know, read out your your bio or mention your past accomplish or or even when you look back on your career uh what what are the feelings that that does that evoke for you like i think when i look back one on my life or my career i said i think lots of good things uh, you know had a, a very good satisfying uh, sort of career a career which i enjoyed very much I, i think every every minute of it i would do it again and when i look at my life of course i've had uh, good things lots of good things happening i've had a lot of challenges but uh, somehow i've been given the strength to face those challenges and in many ways translate those challenges into something that i could do uh, that uh, it could overcome that those challenges so i think like most people uh, good things not so good things and i think i as i look back i think quite fulfilled with uh, what i've done in my life mm. Yeah, that that must be that must be a great feeling. Um, so, so maybe take us back to the the start. Where were you? Uh, where were you born? And where were you brought brought up? Yeah. So I I was born in a little town in Karnataka. It's a, a small township called Arvad, and mm-hmm. there it was a beautiful little place. Uh, just uh, cottages and flowers and trees and birds and butterflies. A college town. There were no industries, so mostly students and professors. And uh, uh, I was in a family of seven kids. My father was a professor and principal of that college. So it was a lovely, uh, lovely place to be in. And I, I have fondest uh, memories of my childhood and early days in Harvard. Yeah, that that sounds uh, that sounds pretty. That sounds amazing. It sounds very idyllic, and sounds like a a perfect place, a perfect place and time to to grow up. <laughs> Absolutely, I can't. I. It's absolutely the one of the loveliest places to be in when you're going. Hmm. 
And um, what was your schooling like? What were you like in school? So in school, I I think I was a very studious child. I, I studied hard right from my KG days, not really as I grew up, but and I enjoyed it. The point is I enjoyed what I studied. So I loved my studies. I also took part in uh, sports a mm. little bit and uh, some games like you know, athletes, I was a good runner and good at table tennis. So these were my, and so that was my, I had lots of friends. Uh, I think the, the best part of my life is I received a lot of love, not only from my family, but friends through school and college. So it, mm -hmm. it was a lovely, lovely time in school too. Mm. That's awesome. Um, and uh, maybe just to touch on this, uh, just before we recorded, you know, we were talking about reading. Um, and you mentioned you loved reading. Who are the, are there any authors that, that come up that maybe when you look back on your life now, you, you might think that they, that they sort of had an impact on you? You know what, I think you, I, if you're a reader, yeah. in a lifespan, you go through different authors. So, mm. so when we were, I was in school, started off with, you know, Little Louisa May Alcott, Little Men, Little Women, and things like that. And that, that those days are Katie. The, the newer books that you have now, we didn't have those. And then, of course, there's a time when you go through all the possible detective books. So there was Sherlock Holmes, there was Alcatha Christie, mm. and uh, you know, Earl Stanley Gardner. So we went through that phase and then went through the other books that, that were available at, at that time. But my father was professor of English and literature and uh, Latin and he sort of when he was at uh, home during vacations uh, you know he gave me all sorts of books to read so mm -hmm. I think even before I finished school I was reading on one side Thomas Hardy, Goldsworthy, Indotoski, which <laughs> you know I don't know wow. how much I remember but yes I went through, through all that but I think uh, you know uh, what I love to well, they gave me a lot of pleasure. The others, of course, helped me, you know, your, your imagination. But I think, you know, P.T. Woodhouse, even today, mm -hmm. I love, love to read. When I want to relax and I want to love, love mm -hmm. Lord Emsworth and his pink. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so I've gone through all that. And, you know, more recently, I think in the years of medical college and when you work as a doctor, you get very little time, unfortunately, mm -hmm. to really... I read. So later on, Mitchner's, I liked all uh, historical, you know, mm -hmm. archaeological novels. I went through that. So I'm reading a lot because I've, there's so much to learn in the new things that now I do a lot of social, you know, I'm mm -hmm. in the practice, so I have to work on that and on palliative care. Mm -hmm. So yes, I read and moved on from early days to what it is now. Yeah. But it's funny you mentioned P.G. Woodhouse. You know that that's always, I think, a, a staple of growing up in India. It's like everyone. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm. Um, and then, then what? Uh, how did you form the decision to become a doctor? Like, what made you take medicine as a as a young person? You know what? I I think I, even when I was small, I used to like that that healing touch, and when anybody fell, I used to run and get something washed. Uh, we had that time we had the all of course clean the wound at all and put some uh, bandage in onto that wounds and i i remember when little birds or puppies were hurt i 
reached out to them, not knowing what to do. We didn't have good vets in those days. So I was always reaching out to those that were hurt or ill. So when I finished college, I, I decided I'm more not because I like the subjects of biology, like I thought not, I love physics and maths, but because of, of what I could do with biology, get into medicine and then become a doctor. I think there was a craving from childhood to do something mm. like this. Mm. And you mentioned you, you didn't like the subjects so much. Uh, like, what were the subjects that you did like in? You know, my favorite subjects in you know school and even in the first year of college was maths and physics. And mm. I, I think because I was a very studious student and I liked those scores, I found it very easy to score in math. It was, you know, easy to get that 99 or 100 marks in maths. And it's mm. a question of hard work. Because it's not a question of, I mean, the harder you work and you keep solving problems, it makes it very easy. And second, physics. I felt there was something in physics that I could pick up easily. So those were my favorite subjects. I'm not so good at drawing. So I I didn't draw, I, you know, our biology, all those diagrams and things like that. Oh, yes. yeah. That's a favorite thing to do. So I never scored as much in biology. But mm. like I said, I didn't know what, what would I do with physics, math, and engineering is nothing. In those days, you know, mm. nothing that I was looking forward to. I chose biology because I said, my God, to see where I belong, what would do, become a doctor. Mm -hmm. Against my parents' wishes, I must tell you, neither my father, my father wanted me to take English literature. My mother mm -hmm. wanted me to relax and enjoy life. She said, don't work so hard. Doctors have to work so hard. Those were parents in those days. I was just thinking that it's the complete opposite of today's parents, especially today's Indian parents. <laughs> correct, correct. Um, and um, so you you ended up taking medicine. And as, as a medical student, did you um, did you enjoy studying medics, medicine? Because it it can be quite well, tough I in the sense. It. Yeah, not enjoyed. I think the word I would use is I loved every minute. And wow. I even on on holidays, you know, that wow. uh, my teachers were a little tired of me. I had to attend <laughs> the outpatient departments and on. To come to diagnose, to start the treatment. I, I loved every bit. There's not only one subject I didn't like too much was uh, pharmacology, you know, mm -hmm. maybe. But when, once I got into clinical medicine, I, I loved every, mm -hmm. every bit of it. And in, in what year were you a student? You know, I joined the medical college in 1961 mm -hmm. and I completed my medicine 65, 66, my internship. Long, long ago. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I suppose at the time, was, was there any, uh, especially in India, was there any prejudice against women doctors or was did you face any of that at all? When I look around me, I think there's a lot of prejudice against women in India. Hmm. But if I if you I ask me personally, in my family, I think I as a girl, I, I was born after four boys. Okay. Pampered, you know, I was made to feel very special by my parents, by my only one sister there, you know, seven siblings, but by yeah. my whole family, I, I was made to make it. And even in the medical college, you know, I think when you you study and you have the board and you know discuss, so I love to teach, so I to teach a lot of my children. I didn't feel the prejudice, but yes, around me, when you're yeah. looking at who 
male patients, you're looking at the world, way girls are treated, oh, there's a lot, lot of prejudice. And mm-hmm. it is um, better, but still exists. Uh, mm-hmm. Sure. And then after you, after you finished studying medicine, what, uh, what, what does, where, where did you decide to go? Like, what was your, your career choices then? Yeah. yeah. You know what? I, I finished um, studying medicine and my choice was to work in rural India villages. Mm-hmm. You know, you sort of, you have those dreams that let me be there for the country, work in the villages. And I joined uh, uh, the sisters of missionary that were there in, in Narva to help them and see because then they would go into the villages. But in that first few months when I worked there, I, there was a child I remember so well that was passing stools an infant, uh, mm. three months old, and passing blood in stools. And I was thinking it might be an infection, but you also have a surgical condition where you can have baby crying and passing blood. But I was not sure, and it was just a dispensary. It was not even in a hospital. The child went back to the village, and when I inquired about the child two days later, that the, the neighbors said, oh, that child went, and the child died that night. And suddenly mm-hmm. I felt like, you know, I finished my medicine, but I don't know enough about children. I, I can't mm-hmm. work in any village, wherever it is. I want to work without knowing more about these adults. And that's when I decided I want to specialize in pediatrics, so I want to go to a good institution. And then mm-hmm. I moved from that missionary hospital in Tarva to Mumbai, mm-hmm. the Indian Institute, to do my pediatrics. Mm-hmm. And, the, and then after pediatrics, you joined, was it Sion Hospital? or was it... You know what, I did my post-graduation in KM, that was about mm-hmm. three years. And then I moved to the Lokmania Tilak Medical College, where I spent three decades. As wow. A, yeah, I, I, I tell you the best time of my life that mm. really knew something. And it was a medical college and it was a hospital. And mm. the largest hospital, you know, like when you have government hospitals that cater only to the poor. So sure. the dying and the desperate came to hospitals like Simon. Mm. That, that's okay. So, yeah, it's um, so. A lot of the listeners of this podcast, you know, are from Australia. So um, maybe if you could paint a picture of what it's like in a government hospital in Mumbai, especially at the time you were there, you know, from the seventies onwards. Like, what, what's your day in the life of of you as a doctor there? So uh, let me tell you what that uh, a government hospital is like. For one mm-hmm. thing, um, a government hospital, especially we were the tertiary hospital, the Sion Hospital was the largest hospital and we did not only a speciality but super speciality treatment so mm. all the people who were beyond science you know the all the districts or the villages beyond that all of them came to science hospital and the ones within around science hospital the science hospital the largest slum in asia the Ravi is next door across mm-hmm. the wall of this is this huge slum so all those patients uh, Came to. So the type of patients that came to Sion Hospital were really the poorest who could not afford treatment because this hospital had totally free treatment. You didn't have to pay for anything. So the poorest came. The second is the number of patients that came was because we could never say no. You know, there was no, no one came by appointments. 
They got up in the morning, they didn't feel well, they just got up and came to the hospital. So there was not, so I could be sitting in an outpatient and normally I would say in Australia, all parts of the world, you see 10 children or uh, 12 or 15 at the most. I could be seeing about 80, 90 children at one morning and they're all crowded, no appointment would all come. So mm. even an outpatient, you would be seeing patients, that's one thing, but in time hospital, you couldn't say no for admission. Mm-hmm. So when you say no, if we had we had a pediatric ward of say hundred beds, we could have 200, 300 children admitted. So mm-hmm. we had beds. I always say that the, you know the beauty about when I took up neonatology, we had babies on beds and cradles, and we had babies on on the floor between mm-hmm. beds in the corridor. So, you know, I, I said, despite mm-hmm. all our ingenuity, we didn't know how to stick them to the ceiling. We would have done <laughs> that if we could. But we had, mm-hmm. so there were no restrictions. It isn't easy to, uh, you know, work in institutions like that. And it, is, it isn't easy to, you know, work one thing and to save lives or really do a good job of um, patients. And remember, these patients are not the educated patients, the ones who know how what to do and how to do. So, you know, mm-hmm. they came, came with their background into the institution. So not, but what was, um, I think, uh, the difference in a government hospital and a private hospital in India, and that's what happened in science. Here you could reach out to the poorest. I mean, you made a difference in their life because they couldn't afford it. So they came to the mm-hmm. hospital and here is where we looked after them, uh, saved their lives. So, it's a different feeling altogether, you know, that, that you get. The other thing in uh, hospital, like in those days, and that's why when you talk about what are the things, uh, you said that uh, low-cost techniques, you don't mm-hmm. always get, you don't have budgets to buy the equipment you want all mm-hmm. the time. You don't have enough staff, you don't have enough nursing staff, and therefore you have to, you sort of uh, ingenuity in how to deal with this and yet survive. Mm-hmm. Mm. And also, uh, I was reading that that when you joined, the infant mortality rate was really like shockingly high. It was around sixty to seventy percent. And you could could you talk about that and then how you brought it down? Well, yeah. If you're looking at uh, infant mortality rates for the country, that when I joined, it was one twenty year for the mm. country. I'm talking about the country, and when we. Uh, today it is 16. So, you know, India has done a very good job of reducing infant mortality. I feel so proud about that. But mm-hmm. when I joined Time Hospital, I'm talking about 60 years ago, it mm-hmm. wasn't the mortality rate of infants or babies, but the sick preterm babies, you know, the babies mm-hmm. who were really sick and they were preterm babies, they had a very high mortality. And, mm-hmm. around, you know, at, when I was there uh, looking after these babies, uh, there was uh, no neonatology existing. We were all pediatricians. And because of that high mortality, I went to the head of my department. I was a young lecturer, and I said, Sir, this having a very high mortality among our preterm sick babies, and we need, mm. we need to do something about it. Do you know what he told me? Mm. You look after them and see what is the cause and bring down mortality. So, mm. overnight, when there's no speciality, Overnight, I moved from pediatrics into neonatology. I said, I'm going to focus the other 
So without a decree, really, just mm. feeling for them, I, I became an overnight neonatologist and then worked there for the rest of my life. Mm. Wow. Yeah. But, but also, I suppose, you know, talking about, you mentioned ingenuity and the, these little uh, things you had to do because you you were so constrained in financing and resources. Yeah. Uh, could you talk about some of the things you had to implement just to... So I'll tell you um, what we did. Uh, today, of course, you talk about innovations and what is something new. At that time, we didn't know the word. We were pushed mm. to the wall and made to say, How think now, what can you do? I'll tell you a, a classical example. When I started looking at only newborn babies, I first had to find out why did they die. And I mm. found out the cause of death was infection. They died of infection. Then I had to find out what is the cause of infection. And therefore, I started looking and I found that if we, you know, the UNICEF had donated some incubators, six incubators to Sion Hospital, where our mm. treated babies were kept. And the moment you put the baby in the incubator, within 24 hours, the baby was sick, 48 hours, we lose the baby. So then I took cultures from the incubator and found they had the the worst uh, organisms, you know, Pseudomonas, Klebsiella, growing mm -hmm. in those incubators. Mm -hmm. And those incubators where you'd say, okay, grow, so you clean them up and reuse them, wouldn't clean them. They had a whole time, I'm talking 50, uh, 55 years ago, they had mm -hmm. water humidifiers inside. It was so complicated. We didn't have enough staff to clean. So mm -hmm. I had to get rid of those incubators. I said, I have to save my babies. And then, okay, you get rid of the incubators, how are you going to keep the baby warm, mm. right? So then mm. I decided, you have to think, what, can, what is it I can do to keep our babies warm without, we'd say buy incubators, there was no money to buy incubators. Mm. So I use room heaters to mm. keep the room warm. And the smaller preterms, we want to be 20 rupees, um, you know, warm, you know, lamps of mm. different voltages depending on the size of the baby. And because mm -hmm. it was a medical college, all these topics to save babies were given to our research students to we make sure that we are really keeping doing the right thing. And mm -hmm. uh, this is the way we change the policies. Another policy, the second thing I did, I already talked about human many bank. Mm -hmm. The second cause of uh, death where the babies die, what diarrhea, mm -hmm. what sexual and diarrhea. Mm -hmm. Where is the source of diarrhea? We're getting formula milk, we'll be using bottles. Mm -hmm. Then, and I'm, I'm talking about the early 80s. Mm -hmm. I said, I'm going to get rid of formula, I'm going to get rid of bottles. Mm -hmm. I want every mother to breastfeed their babies. And this was, you know, years before the you know, baby friendly initiative by UNICEF W came in the 90s. I'm talking about the 80s. Mm -hmm. So we got rid of the bottles, got rid, and I got the mothers into feed their babies, express the milk for their babies. But it was a, what did I say? It was not a correct, really a good practice because, you know, we, I expressed the milk, kept it in the fridge in the thing and then fed the babies. Mm -hmm. And that's why I said, how can we have a really good scientific approach to ensure every baby in the unit gets, you know, uh, you know, clean, you know, sterile, Human milk, and that's why I started the Human Milk Bank in '89 mm -hmm. in Mumbai, the first in India, Asia, and I had mm -hmm. a lot of trouble to convince people about it. But of course, today, uh, everybody is having 
you know, every week there's someone starting a human. But in 89, you know, had a lot of problems. But we started that. And they were, and as we introduced these things, uh, mortality fell down. I'll tell you another thing that we did. You know, we had no nurses. We couldn't supply more nurses. So I said, mm. why do we need nurses? A mother is the best nurse. So I changed the rules of the unit. I got every mother to come in to look after the babies, got them to express their milk, feed the babies, all the procedures a mother could do. And the nurses, of course, did what was, you know, the other IV suctioning, the other procedures. Mm. And I think sometimes, uh, because I think the babies, you know, mothers hold your babies and say, I want you to live. There is love goes mm -hmm. between the skin to skin the contact. Doctors and nurses just flick the babies and make them cry. I think mortality mm -hmm. came down also because of that, you know, the mothers mm -hmm. being involved. So these mm -hmm. are the, some of the many, many things that we, mm -hmm. we did to make sure that babies survive. And mortality really came down. Mm -hmm. That's 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 an incredible story. But but you mentioned that, say, looking at the milk bank, you had real problems convincing people of it. Yeah. What? Why is that? Do you think? Like, you know, first of all, there was no money to start a milk bank, so I had to find a donor. So that's mm -hmm. what we got a donor. The hotels said we will we'll fund it. But mm -hmm. in in that, to convince the um, you know uh, people that. You can give milk from another mother. You know, they were shocked. They said, how can you get one mother's milk to another baby, especially those who have to sanction this problem? I didn't mm -hmm. have a head of the department all for it. Even the dean was, but I had to convince people because I needed staff in the long run. And mm -hmm. then I had to convince them with stories like, you know, India had wet nurses all their like even even now, you know, in those days, grandmothers aren't. So I said, you could have a wet nurse. So this mm. could be, an, you know, I had to quote actually the holy books of the, of uh, saying that Krishna was fed not by his mother, but Yashoda. So mm -hmm. I had to use a lot of skills to convince authorities that mm -hmm. I should start a human milk bank and that is, you know, we to save babies. So that's we did. It required mm. a lot of, like I said. Uh, yeah, it, it seems like all your all your reading of literature and physics and maths really came in <laughs> handy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and I suppose then, then the focus really became uh, on, uh, started to form around the health needs of women in slums because you was, because working at, you know, a large government hospital you were seeing some pretty uh, pretty horrific things if that's yeah to put it mildly here yeah. mm. I, I think that was and you know what Rahul what happened was I focused was on these babies they all came from the slum you you asked me the question that you know did you feel uh, women were discriminated against and here yeah. in the mothers who came to their to our unit and to our preterm unit in ICU, if it was a baby girl, the in-laws' husband didn't come to visit that mother. And even if the baby was seriously ill, you know, you just felt look at what the mothers had and undergoing. You know, and there were sometimes when the baby was serious, the mother would say, "Please uh, discharge me. I have to go home." I said, "Why? 
of me cook for my husband if I'm not at home, he'll marry another woman. So this is where you see that this is what our women were going through. So mm -hmm. I think that that's where I felt. And the third thing I felt, you know, when we struggled hard to save these babies, and you know, of course, soon intensive care came in with all the uh, things that come with intensive care later mm -hmm. years. And at that time, in the 90s, and at that time, we saved a lot of babies, preterm babies, even 800 grammars, 700. They went home and we said, wow, look at the mortality. We've saved so many babies. But when they went home, many of them didn't come back. They mm -hmm. succumbed to it because the environment, they went back to those slums, that congested area, pollution, type of mm -hmm. water. So, and some of the babies came back, but they came back to their own problems, you know, mm -hmm. because of intensive care, you know. Uh, ROPs, you know, eyes, some amount of blindness, deafness, and cerebral palsies, they had an intracranial. So the more I was in that intensive care area, I kept on saying, what is the point? We are here only when the babies are ill and trying. If we really want to make a difference to those babies and prevent them actually from coming to the hospital, we need to move from the hospital into the slums uh, where they live. Uh, mm -hmm. where the families are, communities, convince them to take better care of themselves, help mm -hmm. the mother, come to the hospital on time. And mm -hmm. therefore, I was thinking, I need to move from, from the hospital into mm -hmm. the community at some point in time. Yeah. And was this, this decision, was that a process over a number of years or, or was there a catalyst event that happened and you think, okay, now is the time to act? Now, I think it was over a period of time, and yeah. uh, over a period of time, I felt very strongly for mothers and babies, and I wanted them. But I'll give you a catalytic effect that helped me to take another decision. When I was a professor of neonatology, and we had one of those mortality meets that we have with gynecologists and the neonatologists, a six-week baby was raped and brought. Oh, no. And you know, when I finally, because we were busy. I don't know what finally happened. Did they find the convict? What happened? Who raped the baby? These details are never. But at that time, I swore to myself that when I mm. get out of this hospital, I'm going to work on violence against women and children. And therefore, I I always want to work in the community, the slums on maternal newborn health. This time, I said I'm also going to work on violence against women. And therefore, when I did this, mm -hmm. my NGO, child and then why did it that was added to the mm -hmm. and, and I think, is that when the idea of Sneha came to you? Or? Yeah, that's when the idea of scale. Yep. Uh, sorry, Dr. Fernandez, the, the, I think the network is playing. Oh, that, that's better. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and, and so, um, so how did you go about imp implementing this, this NGO? This, because you had, you had an idea of what needed to be done. How did you go about? Yeah. I, I think, you know, that,
a path cut out for you and if you need to walk and uh, you know, deciding this is the way I go, God shows me the way. And uh, when I, uh, when I, I always spoke about wherever I went, I, I, I want to work in the slums and I don't know when I'll do that. And uh, at one of the weddings, um, there was uh, Devil Sons and I, he said, oh my God, Admira, you're always talking about working in the slums. I have a house. I'm going to sell it for some reason or the other. And you're going to take that money and start working in the slums. And I, I, I smiled and I laughed. And, but you know, unfortunately, it's a, you know, a level, of, you know, had a massive heart attack and passed away. And a few months later, his wife, Patricia, uh, And I said, what do you know? I just said, no, when my husband was talking about this, I was somewhere away, I came and these were his last words saying that he would want you to work in Islam. And I, and my words were, you have five children to bring up and what are you giving me for something? I have not even started. She said, no, this promise has to be fulfilled. And therefore I said, I, I haven't started as, as yet. So Patricia, you and I will get together. And we will start an NGO. And that's, that's how the whole, actually, Sneha was uh, started. And I felt that God wanted me to work in the slums. He was telling me, this is your way. You have the money. You have Patricia with you and the two of you. And that's how I started. I found out how to start an NGO, what needs to be done. And then we had other people in my department as trustees. And that's how Sneha was started. <laughs> yeah. And... Um... I suppose now Sneha has, you know, grown to, you know, I think a few hundred staff and, you know, you have quite a large sum under under management. But but in those early days, uh, how did you, like, implement the first programs? And, like, what what is the biggest challenge there? You know, you know what happened, Rahul, when um, to start with, yeah, you're right. I started with one single social worker. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, we started with one social worker. We started on, you know, violence against women and a little bit on maternal newborn health. And over the years, Sneha is now 22, yeah, 22 years old. Mm -hmm. And from that one social worker, we have a staff of more than 500 today. Wow. I started working in just one slum, that is Dharavi. We started working in Dharavi, the slum next to Sion Hospital. That's mm -hmm. very famous sort of a slum. Everybody talks about the largest slum in Asia. Movies made in it. And um, some talk when Millionaire was made in it. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, so people know the rabbi. So I started working there. Maybe we work across all the slums and the worst slums in, in uh, Mumbai. And we not restricted only to Mumbai, the seven municipal corporations around us. And we work in other states. As well. So it's really grown now. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a huge How do we manage? To tell you the truth, I myself don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I must tell you that uh, I, I'm a professor and uh, my heart beats whenever something happens, you feel strongly about it. Mm -hmm. But I don't have the corporate background saying that how do you raise funds. Mm -hmm. I never had in those days a fundraiser that you need someone to talk for you. And People came around. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable when you're doing work. And this is something I tell everybody, if you are, if you're working and you really feel strongly about it and you work with sincerity, heavens pour out, you know, mm -hmm. people come from all over and, and help you raise funds. And I have people coming 
you know, saying that, can I have a play? And so you can, I, I didn't know, you know, Babanu Potwal, who, you know, who said, you know, uh, can I have a play? I said, oh, you can have a play. And someone says, you can use my theater. And they collected funds. So I didn't uh, actively look around. But whenever we had, for example, we had a pro program, Violence Against Women, I went to the Tata's Foundation and explained it, and they were willing to come. And then, um, you know, the ICICI Bank, that is Patricia Soane's new summer. And mm -hmm. I went and talked about maternal newborn health, and they said, yes, we'd like to work on it. It's mm -hmm. not that we didn't do anything, but we tried. But the funds came in easily at, at that point of time, but we were not a professional organization. Mm -hmm. And I think the greatest blessing that we've had is that it's not just uh, having funds, but it's having good people. Mm -hmm. And as it was blessed with extremely good people. We have now trustees that are so involved in their children. We have a CEO that is um, dropped from heaven, really good. Mm -hmm. But as she's come from the corporate sector, she's changed the way she's using it like an organization should work. So everything is in place that done the, the right way. And all our you know, program directors who've been there for me from some of them from the time we started, they're not even left. So we don't have uh, people leaving so easily. So we have people mm -hmm. coming. I, I think that very committed people. So we are really blessed around with the good people. Mm -hmm. And I think our blessing is because we have come from the government sector mm -hmm. and all the work we do is in partnership with the existing system. See, if you want sustainability and you want to go across, you can't work as an NGO, you have to work with systems. So mm -hmm. then uh, the thing is taken up by the system and whatever mm -hmm. we do. And we work with the government all along. So we partner with the government in all the government, municipal hospitals, um, medical colleges. We partner with the police and their legal system for violence against women. Mm -hmm. These partnerships have also been extremely good. And Funders now from all over. I think I know they've done a very and they've come and helped mm -hmm. behind many ways. Also, I think look, looking at Sneha, this seems just from the outside looking in, there seems to be a dual challenge in that you got to attack it from the top, in that you know you got to affect policy change, but also from the bottom, in that you've got to build trust in the slum itself and in the in the communities in the slum. Um, so, so maybe let's start with the with building the trust. Like, how did you build trust in 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 the slum? Like when you went in. You know, Raul, that is such an important uh, question. It's the most difficult. You know, you go into the slums and you have your ideas. I want to do something, but you don't know what the people themselves want for themselves. So, when you go to the slums, you know, you don't go with. I've come here to teach you and I'm going to give about change. If you have that attitude, nothing is going to happen. So we have a methodology when we go into the slums, we walk with them, we sit with the community, we discuss the issues, we find out what they would like to do about their issues, how they could do. Then mm -hmm. we identify people within the community that could be some sort of community leader. So we, we work with them all along and remember, it's not that it's not that they're learning from us. We are learning so much from them. The community teaches you so much. 
and it's it can't be over a day or over a year it has to be over a period of time and mm. with each passing year when the communities know that we are they are we are with them mm. looking at all their issues and fighting for the issues with them and working with them for the issues then that that link between the community and the NGO starts and I, I can give you examples for example violence against women mm-hmm. you know we had one woman who came in the early days mm-hmm. and in a few years her husband used to you know be violent at home he became a, a you know supporter and he says no we must do something about this and mm-hmm. we started many groups for violence against women Yeah. So you know, they and all they realize how important this, and they um, and the community itself. You know, we uh, we collect volunteers. So mm-hmm. we have our community health volunteers are from the slums itself. So there's mm-hmm. a whole set of community health workers who are from the slums. So they they know the health issues. They work with them. But besides that, we have about. Maybe seven, eight hundred volunteers from the community who are not paid, mm-hmm. and you know they, that becomes such an important thing and was well seen during the COVID epidemic where mm-hmm. we were not allowed to go in the slum. We couldn't go into the slum, but mm-hmm. the, our volunteers were from the slums mm-hmm. and who were working closely with the government, identifying cases, helping them with rations. We did we did so much work. So this um, this sort of a relationship is when you they realize that you're listening to them mm-hmm. you don't have to listen to us all the time we're listening to them we are with them working with them and that they then see the change that is being brought about not just by us but by them themselves changing their behavior mm-hmm. uh, i suppose another challenging thing working in especially a slum in mumbai is how uh diverse it is you know in terms of you know religions and hindus and muslims and christians and and a lot of these groups do not get along with each other uh so given that how did you foster i suppose trust within the community itself so i I'll, i'll tell you something rahul you know what happens for example a slum like darabi we call it little india every state of india is represented there in darabi and also like you said there are different communities and there are different religions but this religious thing is really a political division created by politicians harnessed and then brought down into the slums mm-hmm. if you are looking at the slums as we we work with these people at that level of the slum they are not fighting against each other you know it's not that we are not talking to each other and all at least in that time when we first started there was they they came together but but we you know in the villages you have community groups where you know because the whole community is one community and it's easier to have groups in slums you can't have community groups we have you know lanes hmm. you know gully groups we call it gully groups every lane hmm. because they're so busy they work so hard they don't know people three they they lanes down their hmm. line so people in that lane know each other they share the water they do things together so uh, we didn't have um, as as far as i i know we didn't have clashes among the communities unfortunately today to say some slums are mostly one community you know the smaller slums from another so more or less they they get on mm-hmm. but the, 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 i 
unfortunate part, these uh, divisions are created mm-hmm. by those who want to create it for whatever reason. But mm-hmm. at a, a level, at that level, not as much. Mm-hmm. Uh- the other question is just with Sneha is this thing around growth and how you grew so quickly. Um, what do you think, I suppose, fueled that growth? Um, was it just like, how did you prove like, the success of the programs? Uh, how, what was a measure of success that, that you relied on? I think the difference in Sneha compared to many NGOs is Everything that we do is uh, documented Mm -hmm. and uh, evidence-based and uh, research-based. So Mm -hmm. when we start a program, we start what what are our objectives, what are the results we want to achieve, and it is sort of a research-based project. And everything is documented. You will be surprised to hear. So we have a research team, we have a monitoring team, a huge team within SNEHA, is doing that all the time. And you won't believe all our community health workers, they could be uh, not past, they could have just passed school, mm. all of them are using uh, their, their mobile, you know, small laptops to document every day. So every house they visit, what is the weight of the child, it is all documented on their phones and this is sent to the, the server then analyzed on a daily basis. Mm. And there's a feedback to the community health worker and to the team. So mm. our work, I think what what is the difference in our work and the reason when you said is, you know, you have to impact policy at the systems level mm-hmm. because ours is evidence-based and therefore when we show that having done this, these are our results and therefore this is why we should change the policy as far. For example, let's say malnutrition. Mm-hmm. This is what for malnutrition, this is how we brought down malnutrition in the slums of the Ravi. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so all this is documented and when we show her that this evidence, then we can bring about change at the policy mm-hmm. level. I think that's what what they do in Sneha and I think that has made the difference. Also because the things are so well loved. I told you we have a CEO that is from the corporate and many people now, even our trustees. So uh, the transparency that they have, the way they, everything that is done, you know, whoever comes and sees how we work, and I think that brings in more funders to me, and therefore we've, we mad, we've managed to grow so fast. Mm-hmm. What do you short it at? 22 years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, but, but I think what the organization has achieved in that 22 years is quite, is quite remarkable. Like, you know, um, Absolutely. We have excellent programs, you know, for example, uh, malnutrition that I talked to, which have excellent work in malnutrition, brought down uh, wasting and, you know, uh, underweight children, all of that we work on. Violence against women, excellent. I think all I, uh, we've done, and the government at the legal system, you know, the one-stop center that the, the government has, they asked us to run it. We have a in every medical college, government medical college, our counselors are there. We work with police and police stations. I think they're doing excellent uh, work mm. in uh, whatever projects. For example, the maternal newborn health, mm. there was no referral system, you know. Mm. There were primary, secondary, tertiary mm. levels of care, and there was no system of referral. So over the years, 
this is the system that we've laid down not only in the municipal corporation of Mumbai, but across seven corporations. Mm -hmm. And uh, this has been accepted by the system and they have taken it over. Mm -hmm. So these are things that uh, I think they've done. Uh, mm. Yeah, because the health system in India is, is quite fragmented in the sense there's hospitals, there's maternity houses, there's other things, there are other, cl other smaller clinics. Mm -hmm. And and then the, and like you said, they're not all connected. Like they, they don't. Especially yeah. in a city like Mumbai, the private sector mm. is a huge private sector that does whatever it is not well, uh, you know, mm. regulated. Mm -hmm. So we have a huge private sector as well that complicates um, things. And the poor, however poor they are, they feel mm. when you pay, you get better service, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But even in the private sector, when the patient gets serious or really ill, they transfer to the government sector. Mm -hmm. so there are lots of things that happen in the health sector. But let me tell you, Rahul, when I see over the years, I think even uh, I said we didn't have money in the municipal corporation, we didn't have staff. Today, the whole uh, pattern has changed. They are doing an excellent job. If you look at the municipal corporation, the government hospitals, the staff, the funding, you know, it has all changed. Mm. When I started 56, it was a different story. But today, I think, and I'm so happy to see that. To see a lot of changes. They're doing a, a very good job. They're trying. They did an excellent job in Mumbai. COVID. Mm. What a wonderful yeah. job. Mm. So I think something that it's a case study to be mm. recorded and seen by others. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that was that was really something. Uh, just moving on from Sneha now, um, I suppose your, your next venture, if you want to call it that, was, you know, uh, Romila Palliative Care, and that unfortunately came out of you know very tragic circumstances. Um, are you are you open to talking about about that? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Hmm. So Raul, I started the, the Romila Palliative Care Center because I lost my only child, Romila, to hmm. cancer. Mm -hmm. And although we were in a city like Mumbai and we went to the best hospitals and the best doctors, you know, the focus was on uh, curing and treating. And uh, it was a case of Hodgkin's when she was 17 and this was uh, breast cancer. You know, in her 30s, she got this breast cancer. And the drugs were not work working. I think it was post-radiation that she got it. Mm -hmm. And they kept on saying moving from this to that. And, I think the concept, maybe because we were both doctors, they never said this is something you can do. One of mm -hmm. the doctors, a colleague of mine, did tell me, she says, maybe you should take her home and you know, convert your heart. But no one counseled us, and even the pain relief was not the best. And uh, when we lost her, I, I said, why should parents go through all this? Why should a child go through all this? Why should there be so much suffering? And uh, I, I looked around and I said, I, I, I'm a doctor. The first then came across that there is something like palliative care and Tata Hospital had a unit and I was not aware. And I said, why are you doing more about that? And uh, that's why I said, you know, when we, I, I said, you, I always feel there when you feel strongly about something, I said, this is something that needs to be done in the city. They mm -hmm. don't have anything like palliative care, not enough at least. Mm -hmm. And then I got in touch with people, and then I started the 
Romla Palliative Care Center. And mm. I realized that palliative care is not just for cancer patients, but for all patients with all life-limiting disease. And therefore, it could be, you know, stroke, it could be dementia, it could be Parkinson, chronic heart, lung. So we started a comprehensive palliative care center. Mm. Now, you know, today, we're four years down the line, I, we're doing a phenomenal job. We, we have uh, teams of doctor, nurse, counselors going across from Dada down, you know, north south of, uh, of uh, Mumbai. And mm. we are now in department in Bandra. Mm. And we're doing, I, uh, I think they're doing a wonderful job. And mm. I, more important, I realized that enough was not being done. So we formed a palliative care network from Mumbai. And mm. now, like, lessons from Pine Hospital and lessons from Sneha, mm. uh, we are tra- working with the government and trying to uh, train the government doctors in palliative care, start OPDs in palliative care with government. It's just the big thing, it'll take time. Mm-hmm. So we want to you know, make sure that people uh, receive palliative care. Mm. No, Kerala has got a bit like Kerala is a state all by itself, yeah. but they don't have good palliative care. But we don't have it in the city, and that's what we're trying to do. I think it's remarkable how you, how you took such a tragic circumstance from your life and then created this thing to. To really make sure that others don't go through the same the same thing yeah i i think that's uh you know, that's what i said you know when you come across something to translate it into if you want healing within yourself you can cry and weep and get depressed and all. doesn't help anybody doesn't help yourself but mm-hmm. we've converted into something positive where you know then i i feel that my daughter's death is you know she died because this we had to reach out to people. You feel, you feel that it was, uh, you know, you feel uh, in a way healing, the healing process is much better mm. when you can help other people. You know, in yeah. mm. uh, I think, I, I think it's, that's really beautifully put. And I think that's really, I think the essence of, of a meaningful life is really um, taking your hardships and then uh, seeing how you can bring value to someone else. Mm. Um, so, so I think just, you know, reflecting on, I suppose, just the stories you've said and, you know, your, your career and your history, um, if I were to ask a a close colleague of yours, you know, how would they describe you as a leader? What would, what would they say? Actually, uh, you know what, yesterday, uh, a student of mine, not student, a colleague of mine who Mm. worked with me for seven months. She was. Uh, she went to uh, the UK and she came back to visit her mother. And she came and met me yesterday. Hmm. And she said a strange thing. So it's a good question to start asking me, Rahul. <laughs> she said, "You know, you know what?" Um, she told me, "Dr. Fernandez, you know what I've learned from you as a leader. That a leader, you don't sit at the top and tell people what to do. Uh, you work with them. Hmm. You work with them." To see that whatever the vision is gets translated into action, mm-hmm. and she said that in the chuck and that that you you empower people to do things, and mm-hmm. she gave me two examples I want to share with you. Sure. She said when I she said when I came to the unit, she had come from PGI Chandigarh. She reminded me that 
I wonder if she hears this thing. She'll be wondering how I'm quoting her what she said yesterday. She said, I came from a big institute and another institute. And there she said, I was just new to Sion Hospital. Hmm. And the new intensive care, neonatal intensive care was being inaugurated. And I probably had to give a lecture some part of the country and I had to go. And she said, here I have a lecture. And I, I told her, you are the Vandibisha, you take over and you make sure everything goes right. And she said, my God, I was wondering what I'd do. And mm. uh, then she said that she, the dean used to call her and she said, I must prove myself. And she said, when I came back and then they had, uh, we had the inauguration, she said, it went so well. And then she said, she empowered me and made me feel that, you know, I could do it because I trusted her and gave her that. So that's one thing she said. And the second thing she told me is that, uh, you know, we needed something, you know, adjustments uh, for the unit and that, like I said, you can't give the, it's a long process to get it. So I got some funds from the doctors in the hospital and I took her with me to profit market, which is where you get cheap the good things for the unit. And mm. she said, come with me, we will go and buy it. And she said, and I think here's the head of department trucking to some market, getting the dustbins and coming to the hospital. She said, <laughs> And now she's she's one of the joint directors in a big guys hospital in a UK. And she says, whenever I I'm in this position and I decide, I think of how you are as a leader. So maybe uh, this may give you an idea. But I think you're not a really a leader because all the ideas can't come from you. You might have had a lot of experience, but even those your colleagues have so many ideas. So I think as a leader, you listen to people hmm. and collectively you take decisions on what needs to be done. I think that's a true because all and different people have different strengths. Use all their strengths positively to make that difference. I think um, I wish mm. I think that was how the leader I was and I, I wanted to be. I hope I was that. Mm. And another thing that's really I think special about you is the you know you, you have these ideas and you have these ideals of you know whether it's improving conditions for newborn babies in a you know massive public hospital like you know Sion or it's starting a milk bank or really looking after after you know women in, in slums which are really you know challenging problems but between having an idea and action there seems to be a very short gap you have this ability to really transform ideas and ideals into action where, where do you think that comes from how, how would you explain that you know what, you know, Rahul, I'll tell you the truth, I believe. I, I, I have strong faith. Mm. You know, I have long, strong faith, and I believe that God has a plan for you and sort of whispers in you, and it just sort of translates. I, I don't um, I don't make an active decision. I have to do this, I have to do that, or all the planning. Now these people do five-year plans and ten-year plans. No, I don't do that. Mm. And I talk about it. I feel... And I feel strongly I talk about it. And I think as I talk about it, people come. And I don't know where they are. I feel God sends them. You know, and, uh, one of the funders didn't give me, who came to the US, he said, where, what is your five-year plan? I said, I don't know. He said, where did your funder? I said, you know, God sends them. And he never, he didn't come back to me. But this is what I, <laughs> this is US versus Alida Fernandez in Mumbai. But this is what I sincerely feel. I don't think you do it yourself. Some power that is wanting you to do, pushing it to you, and let things come in. 
that's that's my my sincere belief. I don't know. Maybe mm. sure. But also, I suppose when things get a bit tough, when when you really need to, because I think a big challenge is convincing people to abandon the status quo, abandon you know business as usual, and and try something different. But you have this ability to to convince people. Uh, how how would you explain that? Is it? I don't like. Oh, give me an example. Convince people about what what is this around? Uh, well, I think you know through your history, there's been you know many examples like you know say starting a milk bank, uh, uh, you know going into Sneha, going into communities in Sne in the slum, asking people there to trust you. Um, it could be convincing donors. You know. Yeah, you know I think because I feel I I think if you strongly feel about something. It, it has to come from within your heart. And if you feel strongly about it, automatically the right words come to the right person. And, uh, and uh, you know, you I, there's no planning as such, but you know the right words. If you have to convince people, then you have to have your, this is what I want to do. This is how it can help. For example, if I had to convince something, someone about the milk bank, I would say, look at this, the way babies are dying. They're dying because of the type of milk we give them. And therefore, we need, and they would, they get convinced that you know this is a project worth worth doing. So, mm. I think it's the, I think the, the feeling strongly about someone, you know, I think automatically the words come to you, and you try and convince. Also, let me tell you, when you feel strongly, you're also doing some background work. And today, you'll ask, you mm. tell many people, if, you know, the my staff and the organization hear me talk. They, they do a lot of planning, you know, they do a lot of baseline work, they do a lot of reading, they do a lot of research, what we done, why. And today to convince people, you know, you have the CSR, we have got lots of academic bodies, so you have to go really uh, well planned. So mm -hmm. a different type of planning that one needs now to really get. That I think of the way it worked when I first started was a strong, desire feeling and I'm doing it not for myself but for the people who need it mm. and therefore the right words come to convince people mm. and also do you, do you feel uh, what, what do you draw on for for the courage to do that I, I never I was never afraid mm. even now I, I don't draw on I, I, I it's in me. I, I, I've never, I, I, maybe I owe it to my parents, my mother, hmm. who made me feel, I think that maybe that's the reason, that's a good question, it's making me think. When hmm. I was young, and I think my, uh, my parents did do all the same things, my mother used to say, she made me feel I was perfect. She says, how well you walk, hmm. how well you talk. And I, you know, I, really my walk is something you'd like to see, what. But she made me feel that I was good at everything I touched. There was no criticism as such. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think this um, positive feeling that was given to me uh, made me, uh, you know, able to talk. You know, for example, I can, you know, I can be, a, people get um, you know, uh, stage fright. I've never, I've not known what stage fright is. Mm -hmm. I can go anywhere, talk. To anyone, there's no fear in me at all. 
Mm -hmm. I think this was because of the positive uh, approach my mother gave me, saying that you can do, you're good at it, and things like that. Mm. Maybe that's the reason. You made me think, but I think this may be one of the reasons. Yeah. Um, and also, I think there's a question around uh, resilience, because you, you've uh, I think resilience and hope because you've been through a lot in your life. You know, you've had some really, uh, some real, some real tragedies, and you've also seen, I suppose, the worst of humanity in in the work that you do. Yes. Um, so, so from where do you find that resilience, and and what gives you hope? I think my faith. Hmm. You know, uh, you know, when uh, personal tragedies and all, I think the important thing that to remember is certain things you can't change. Mm. And what you can't change, you need to accept. Mm -hmm. And acceptance is the only way to take it forward in life. So that is for personal, you know, what, what I went through personally. So I, and faith, you know, there is a reason why this happened. Mm -hmm. God brought me into this world for a particular reason. And if I need to go through what I need to go through, I need to accept it. So that faith, and I think that's so important for people. I know less and less people have this faith, but to survive this tough world, I think that is a, that's so necessary. At least it made all the difference in my life. Mm -hmm. And when the resilience, when I saw things around me, you know, see the women in the slums or mothers in the hospital, it made me, the resilience was because I said, I'm here because I need to do mm -hmm. something about it. You know, mm -hmm. I've been brought here because I can do something. And therefore, I worked very hard to try and uh, those mothers happy, to try and bring down uh, the mortality rates. Also, more important than that, you know, in a public hospital, talk to mothers, put your arms around them, make them feel there is someone with you. And this is, as a teacher, you not only talk to the mothers, but you set an example to your colleagues, to your residents. In the residents, when they talk to me now, say these are the things they learned. They didn't learn so much neonatology, but how to feel and how to deal with. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think the resilience comes from, you know, wanting to reach out and doing something. Mm -hmm. something. And can you talk about hope? What, what gives you hope? Uh, what gives me hope? I think uh, as long as I live, I'll always have hope. <laughs> you know, as I... Because whatever happens, and sometimes, you know, uh, for example, things happening here, I can do something for things happening in my home. I can do something for people in my community or for people in the slums, and we're trying to do that. Mm. But when you look at the world and see what is happening, see in our country itself, what's happening in the country, what's happening in the world, the wars, the things that are happening, what is it that gives you hope? And the thing is that, the hope comes from the fact that all this, hmm. you know, there is a time for this and all this will change and, the, you know, the better things will come out finally. I think that is the way. And I, again, it is based on, on, on hope. Hmm. That's great. You know, on, on faith or not hope, but it's based yeah. on faith. Um, and, uh, you know, last couple of questions. Like this podcast is really about, I suppose, for people to think about the the work that they put out in the world, um, so it's sort of a two-parter. Like if someone's just finished college, 
uh, or if someone's in a, I suppose, mid-career career slump, what, what advice would you give them around, you know, around finding meaningful work? I, I, I would say if someone is just finish college, uh, what I would tell them that look for something that will make you feel good about yourselves and will give you, make you feel happy. You know, what happens that people, it's what you look for in life. You know, I wanted this career because I'll, I'll make a name for myself. I want this a career because I'll make a lot of money. I, I, this is the career I, I want to because, you know, I can, people around me will be so impressed. So, these are the wrong reasons. You're, you're getting into a career that won't give you that satisfaction. So you've got to uh, ask yourself, what will really make me happy? And it doesn't matter, you know, when people, it could be anything. You know, I could be a teacher. I love to teach. So let me spend the rest of my life teaching because that really makes me happy. And they both. That career may not give you all that money. That career may not give you all. At least you are fulfilled because you are, you've done what you want. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with the mid-career. Many people halfway through the, I know, I know it happens all the time, mid-career. They've mm -hmm. gone with your career and, uh, you know, that's not the way. They are, they are stuck halfway and they don't know uh, what to do, where to go. And I think they need to take that break and look around them and see what are the other choices I have in life? And what is it I can work? Would it that be possible? Would that make me really happy? That Will that give me fulfillment? Mm -hmm. And what I want to say is that when I talk to, you know, I, when I talk to uh, women and, uh, you know, whatever stadium I'm talking to people, and they say, oh, my God, you've done so much in the slums and you've done this. It's not that. Hmm. Each one has a role to play in life. You know, when you come into this world, you have a role to play. You don't all, not everybody can work in slums or be in a hospital. But mm -hmm. just be a husband at home. Hmm. But when you're playing that role, if you enjoy it, if you, you know, you love cooking and you make the best and keep your family happy with the cooking, mm. or, you know, create an atmosphere in the home that makes everybody happy, you happy, that's the role you have to play. And mm. you you find happiness in it, family is happy and you should feel fulfilled. Mm -hmm. You can't be someone else. Mm -hmm. So don't choose a role so-and-so. Rahul, you're doing this and I want to be Rahul because you've got so many books in your library. Is that something I would like to do? And I, I said, no, but Rahul has the time. He, he loves books and he's reading. But I'm, mm -hmm. I'm here doing something else that I'm enjoying. So you will be in your world and I'll be in my world. So you have to you have to take take time and sometimes you know when you finish with college and you're wondering what to do expose yourself to different things mm -hmm. you know today is very popular take that one year off mm -hmm. you know? it's mm -hmm. they take time off we have mm -hmm. never been allowed in our days but mm -hmm. that time you explore and find out what makes you happy mm -hmm. i think that's what i would tell mm -hmm. That's great. And this this is the last question, and, and maybe you've answered this, answered it in part already, but this is the On Meaningful Work podcast. That's the name of this podcast. Uh, what does the term On Meaningful Work mean to you? So I think uh, 
meaningful work would be if I can bring about a change in someone's life that is positive. What would be meaningful? If I see that the mother taking a newborn baby home, hmm. you know, after intensive, that smile on a face holding a baby, that would be meaningful to me. If I see that child in that slum and was malnourished and now the cheeks have come up, the weight has gone off and his child is playing, that would be a meaningful uh, to me. You know, if I see a uh, meaningful be when I see women, you know, the community health workers from our slums, they can transform. You know, they come, they don't know, uh, you know, they don't know much, they're learning and we have put them through a whole lot of training for and within a year or two years, they're completely transformed. I would I would tell them it can stand for elections we want. They can talk, they can do some uh, that would be that is uh, meaningful. And now when uh, I visit patients, palliative care patients in their home and I see that dementia my patients smile at me when I enter, or I, I have someone saying, Thank you, doctor, my pain is relieved. Hmm. You know, that is meaningful. I think that. That uh, to bring about that change in someone's life, I think that would be, that's very meaningful, mm. meaningful life. Mm. Wow, that's such a great answer, Dr. Fernandez. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for making the time today. This has been uh, such a great chat for me, uh, and I think yeah, I think for for a lot of our listeners as well. Uh, so so really, thank you so much. My pleasure, Rahul. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're enjoying and are learning from this podcast, please subscribe on YouTube, Apple, and Spotify. A great zero-cost way to support us is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you are feeling extra generous, it would be great if you could leave a comment or feedback on our Apple Podcast or YouTube pages. Or you could email your comments and feedback to me directly at rahul at disruptivebusinessnetwork.com that's r-a-h-u-l at disruptivebusinessnetwork all one word dot com finally a big shout out to our producer dan scahill for his work on the keys and to vashti civil for writing the original music for our theme until next time this is your host rahul sones signing off bye